As you're turning there in your Bibles, I wanted to actually apologize to you guys for something. Uh, last Sunday, at the end of my message, I was trying to make the point that we, at times, are, uh, as we were talking about pastors and submitting to pastors, that there are times where we are suspicious of authority and we don't want to submit. And as an illustration of that, I actually mentioned our current county mask mandate, some of my feelings about that, and I named Supervisor Wendy Root Askew, who I went to high school with, by name. And I left service that day, and I just felt like, that's not me, that's not what I do. I usually don't mention politicians that I agree with or disagree with by name. And then the Lord just opened the door for me to actually speak with her this week, and so I apologized to her for that and then was able to share with her the real difficult spot that pastors have been put in with some of these ordinances and mandates and the decisions we've had to make. We had a good conversation about it, and she's actually going to come by one of these Wednesdays to meet my staff and hear about some of the things that we're doing that the county uh, is going to be you know, blessed by, some of the things we're doing in foster care and with addiction and things like that. But I just wanted to mention to you, that's not my style. That's not the way that I roll normally, so I just wanted to mention that to you guys as well. Uh, today, regardless of how you feel about the mandate itself. That's just not the way that I do things myself. So wanted to say that to you guys. All right, First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. We're going to look at two verses today, and I want to start out by reading them uh, together. He says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Father, we come to you today. We just want to pray for this time in your word. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to allow these things to sink into our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful space that we have to gather in. Thank you for the sound system that enables this, the wonderful worship time that Pastor Riley just led us in. Thank you for preserving this book for so many thousands of years now so that we can read it, study it, learn from it. Thank you for the scholars and teachers who have come before, who have laid down great groundwork to help us understand a text like this. But mostly, Father, thank you for you, that you are the one that with your mighty hand we can come under, humble ourselves to, that you at the right time, in your estimation of it, will exalt us and that we can take all of our anxieties and concerns, especially pertaining to the exilic Christian life, and we can bring them to you, cast them upon you, and that we can do all this because of your nature, who you are. You care for us. So I pray today that you'd speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we've been going through the book of First Peter, thinking about a version of Christianity that I'm calling exilic Christianity, and I'm not the only one using that title. But as we consider this kind of Christianity, a Christianity that is on the margins at times, a Christianity that is not in the uh, majority, but in, in, in some places, in times, the extreme minority, how do we live that kind of Christian life? Uh, I think that one of the most disorienting things or events that believers in that situation can experience is when we suffer for God's name. In, in other words, when we suffer for Jesus. How are we to process that kind of suffering? What are we to think 
when insulted or slandered or marginalized for Jesus. It can be a real disorienting kind of experience. It kind of reminds me of my second night as a parent. My, my uh, firstborn uh, daughter actually turned 18 this last week. So it's a little bit of like a monumental moment in our lives. Uh, but I remember the second night of her life. It was a very disorienting experience. People had told me that parenting was, you know, good, but there would be difficult moments. But the uh, kinds of sounds that her little seven-pound body was able to produce in the middle of that second night uh, just had me doubting, like, everything that I'd ever known. I, I mean, I was really questioning, like, the goodness of God and <laughs> whether or not, like, the next, you know, 20 years were just going to be constant pain and misery. It was just, like, so disorienting for me to go through. And I think in a similar way, it can be disorienting, like I said, when we suffer for Jesus. I mean, think of the way that Peter has described or prepared us for exilic Christianity. He told us in chapter 3, verse 17, that we will sometimes suffer according to God's will for doing good. He told us in chapter 4, verse 12, that suffering for Christ should not surprise us because it's not a strange event in our lives. And he told us in chapter 4, verse 17, that sometimes these events are even God's hand of judgment upon his church. That God is purifying and growing his church through the insults and slander or marginalization. He even said in chapter 4, verse 19, you could probably even just see it right there in your Bible if you look at it. He said, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the very God who, he says, according to his will, you at times suffer, we're to also be trusting, entrusting our souls to that very same God. And I think sometimes we just don't understand. You know, that suffering for Jesus can be disorienting. We ask, how can this be good for us? Or how could it be okay that these things are happening to me? Or how could this be happening according to the will of God? Or if I were God, we might say, I would do things differently. How can God be good? And questions like these, I think they sometimes reveal uh, an element of pride in the human heart. A pride that thinks that it knows better than God himself. You know, in other words, if I were in charge, we might say, the world would look radically different than it does. If I were in charge, Christians would be a favored people. Uh, our values would be the norm. How could anything other than that be good? And for this, Peter gives us today an exhortation, followed by a motivation to do the thing he exhorts us to do, followed by an application, how to actually do it, and then a foundational doctrinal truth of who God is that would, should motivate us to living this way. So let's think first about the exhortation. It's found at the beginning of verse 6. If you look at it again in your Bibles, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's the exhortation that we're going to consider today. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, to understand this exhortation, we need to understand the phrase, the mighty hand of God. It sounds like a real Bible-y kind of phrase, right? You know, the mighty hand of God. But it comes 
from the book of Exodus and a very specific event in Exodus. It comes from the moment when God delivered the people of Israel from their captivity in Egypt through the plagues. And God announced to Moses at the bush that burned it was not consumed. He said, I'm going to use you to deliver the people, but I know, God said, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And through the rest of the plague experience, they're expressed as God's mighty hand of deliverance, delivering his people. And when Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, when he recounted the passages or the stories of the Exodus over and over again in Deuteronomy, Moses talked about how God did it by his mighty hand. So uh, the idea of God's mighty hand is that it's meant to remind us of God's power to intervene in human affairs to deliver his people. God's mighty hand is meant to remind us of God's power to intervene in human affairs to deliver his people. In other words, in Peter's mind, the God of the first exodus is the God of the second exodus. He rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt, and he rescues his church from the slavery of sin. He delivered the people of Israel by the Passover blood of the Passover lamb, and he delivers his church by the blood of the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. He called Israel out of bondage, and he calls us out of bondage as well. He said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me, and he still wants that today. He's not setting people free so they can do what they want. He's setting people free so that they can become servants of himself. So what does it mean when Peter says that we must submit or humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? What Peter means is that when suffering for Jesus, when that happens, whether it's an insult or full-scale persecution in some places and times, we are to know something about God. We're to know that God is still a delivering God. He still sets the prisoner free. He still looses the bonds of captivity. So when our social status suffers because of Jesus, Peter seems to think that we should accept those difficult circumstances as part of God's deliverance. He's still releasing his people from bondage the bondage of self-centeredness, the bondage of ease, the bondage of distraction, the bondage of human approval, the bondage of greed, the bondage of distraction, the bondage of thinking we can get the kingdom of God done in our own strength, the bondage of sin. This is part of what Peter meant when he said that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God in chapter 4, verse 17. God's mighty hand will sometimes allow for the marginalization of his church, sometimes as a way to set us free from the bondage to sin. Now, I'll admit that this is sometimes hard to receive. This is why Peter had to give this exhortation to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's not always an easy thing for us to do. I was reading recently about a group of Christians 
uh, near the end of the 17th century in France. Uh, they had... Uh, they were reformed. They'd come out of the Great Reformation. They were not in Martin Luther's camp, but they were actually kind of the forefathers of reformed theology and all of that. And they were existing in France. And an edict had been passed decades earlier that allowed them to exist there in France. The state religion was that version uh, at that time of Roman Catholicism. But at the end of the 17th century, a new king came into power who established a new edict uh, where he outlawed uh, Christianity, outlawed their reformed version of Christianity, and basically, in effect, was trying to force them into that version of Roman Catholicism. And the pastors at that time of these various churches, uh, knowing that they were in the minority, they encouraged the people, the congregation, uh, with the book of 1 Peter and with other passages in the New Testament, telling them, hey, don't respond violently, uh, don't convert, but you need to peacefully uh, do what you can, live out your Christian life, uh, but don't violently respond to all of this. Well, a lot of those pastors actually suffered violence themselves. Many of them were taken away into captivity. Some of them lost their lives. And a new um, kind of generation of leaders arose for the church who actually weren't pastors. Church history looks upon them more as mystical prophets. And a lot of them saw visions and dreamed dreams. And one of the things that they did is they used the beast of the book of Revelation and they compared the beast to the king of France and they encouraged their followers to fight, to you know, kind of go to war against France. And a bloody kind of massacre on both sides was the result. And I'll admit that when I read the story of those people, I have mixed emotions. You know, who was right, the original pastors or the prophets who replaced them? And really, I'm not suggesting that the answer is easy to come by. It's hard to know what to do at times. All I can do is hold up the words of Peter and the rest of the New Testament. And here, what Peter said is, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, he's telling them you need to submit to what God has allowed into your life. And so I pray that God would give us wisdom on how to do this very thing that he's asking us to do. But there's a motivation for all of this. And the motivation is mentioned in the second half of verse 6. Would you guys look at your Bibles and read this with me? He said, so that at the proper time, he, being God, may exalt you. That's the motivation. In other words, according to Peter, the same hand that allows suffering for Jesus will also exalt you with Jesus. The same shepherd who leads you through the valley of the shadow of death is the same one who is taking you to the mountainous green pastures that he has for you. The same God who brings you low is the same God who will raise you up. At the proper time, Peter said, God will exalt us. But the question that we might have is, well, what exaltation is Peter thinking about? When he says that at the proper time, God will exalt us, what does that mean? Sometimes we just say these things and we quote these things from the Bible. We have no idea what specifically he's saying, but it's good for us to think about what is this exaltation? If you're like me, probably the first thing that comes into your mind is like, oh, he's probably talking about heaven. He's probably talking about eternity. You know, the Bible's saying that every tear will be wiped away and all things will become new. And so at that time, that exaltation, that's when everything will be set 
right. And there's, of course, an incredible element of truth in that understanding. But perhaps Peter is not thinking of the next life. Perhaps Peter is thinking about life today, that there's some way that God will exalt his people who suffer in and for his name. Perhaps he's confident that this will happen today. Maybe he's thinking of the increased spiritual power that can come to a marginalized group of believers or a deeper fellowship with God that occurs when we feel that there's no one else to turn to or an increased impact that we can make upon the nations because of our suffering. Somehow, someway, Peter knows that God will exalt all who suffer for Jesus. Now, my mind goes to the Apostle John. John was uh, possibly a teenager when Jesus walked the earth, probably the youngest of all of the disciples or apostles, and he ended up living the longest life of all of them, the rest of them being martyred. Church tradition or history tells us that when he was around 90 years of age, they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, but that God miraculously preserved his life and he lived. We don't know if that's true or not because it's outside of the Bible, but in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, we learn that because he was faithful as a witness for Jesus, in his older years, he was banished to the prison island of Patmos. John was old, had likely gone through great physical trials and agony, and there was nothing that he could do. There was no fight that he could fight. But there on the island of Patmos, God gave him a vision of Jesus. It's called the book of Revelation. He saw Jesus revealed in his glory. And he learned about the events and elements of the future and wrote them down. And his words have been a source of encouragement to generations of Christians ever since that time. Even if believers haven't understood it at all times, believers at all times have been comforted to know that God will consummate, he'll end, he'll conclude all things, he'll wrap them up according to his sovereign plan. You see, John, he experienced something beautiful from from God in the midst of his suffering. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, and in the proper time, God exalted him. And maybe there's some chance that John's revelation is an example of the exaltation that Peter thought was coming. John was brought low, but God exalted him. He showed him things he had never previously known. And maybe for some of us, we could consider how at the proper time, God will exalt everyone who suffers even a little bit for Jesus. And as you think about that, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to tell you that, hey, you know, cheer up because you'll probably write like another book of the Bible or something like that. That was a John apostle kind of thing. If you think that God is leading you to write another book of the Bible, I'd love to chat with you after service. But there might be some elements of Jesus that are true, but that you've just not really been in touch with. And perhaps going through the pain, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, there might be a beautiful thing that God does in your soul and in your spirit. He might exalt you in that way as well. Now, beyond just that motivation, Peter brings us to an application. How do I do this? You know, if the exhortation is to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, and if the, you know, reality of it is that I can 
be elevated by God at the proper time. What's the application? How do I do this? You know, do I just sign a form that says, like, I will humble myself under the mighty hand of God and, like, sign the document or something? What do I do? Well, notice what Peter says at the beginning of verse 7. He says, casting all your anxieties on him. Casting all your anxieties on him. So what Peter's doing is he's telling us to accept what God's hand gives us by taking every one of our anxieties, some translations call them worries or cares or burdens, take all of them, especially the ones that are connected to suffering for Jesus, and cast them upon God, the same God whose mighty hand we have come under. Now, what are these anxieties that Peter refers to? I mean, there's thousands of pressures that could qualify. Some of them are related to our personal lives. Every one of you here, you've got personal things going on in your life that you're concerned about. Some of our anxieties have to do with our physical health. I was just talking to a relative of mine yesterday about the process of aging that we're all going through and how there's just stuff that happens that you're like, well, that's a bummer. We have relational issues circumstances in our lives, workplaces, children, our churches, our nation, our spiritual condition, all these concerns compound and multiply and oftentimes can create a disabling effect in our lives. We're so worried. So Peter tells us to do something. He says, take your anxieties and cast them upon God. Cast them upon God. It's an energetic word. It's not a word that's Barely active, but very active. He doesn't say, lay your anxieties before God, or set your anxieties before God, or even bring your anxieties to God, as good as all of those things are. He says you need to cast your anxieties upon him. We're to throw our pressures onto God because God can handle it. Imagine two people in a canoe, and the canoe is out in the middle of a body of water, and it begins to take on water and starts to sink. How are they going to bail the water out of the canoe? Is it going to be a slow, gentle process? No, they're going to cast the water out of that canoe. They're going to throw their energy into that experience. And you see, sometimes we know that God is inviting us to cast our cares upon him, but the knowledge of that invitation is not enough. We have to take the invitation. We have to actually cast our cares and anxieties upon him. We've got to do the work that unlocks God then taking them and exalting us in due time. Uh, in my family, we, uh, my family likes to tease me about a lot of things, but one of the things that they like to tease me about is how I respond to very minor emergencies. Uh, when these little things happen, that are kind of like abrupt and sudden. Uh, something happens to my wife, Christina. It's like she's got ice in her veins. Her heartbeat slows. She just methodically does what she's supposed to do to get the job done. And she moves, if, I mean, she's not here at this service, so I'll just speak candidly, way too slowly for me. I go the other direction. I start running around like a chicken with my head cut off. I, I love the panic when these things happen. There's this one episode that they bring up all the time, and it was this moment 
where I was behind the refrigerator trying to fix something, which should totally be your first clue. I'm Pastor Nate Holdridge. There's no refrigerating uh, expertise in my background whatsoever. But I was back there trying to do something, banging on things, unscrewing things or whatever. And the hose, the water line hose became disconnected. And uh, because there's a lot of pressure going to that hose uh, coming from the wall, the hose started flapping around like a out of control helicopter blade and water was just spraying all over the kitchen. And in, in my mind, I'm like, man, this kitchen is about to be uh, totaled by our insurance company if we don't get a handle on this in three seconds. And so I reached down to, you know, turn the water off. But the the valve was so corroded that when I turned it off, it just broke in my hand. So the water is just spraying. I can't turn it off. And my whole family, for whatever reason, they were all there at this moment. I, they were like watching me try to fix the refrigerator. And they all just were standing there. And I remember I started yelling at them. I'm like, get towels. Do something. Call 911. You know, I'm just freaking out, you know, kind of thing. Before I finally realized, like, all I have to do is go out the front door to the main water valve, turn that off, come back inside, reconnect the hose, go back outside, turn the water on again, and we're good to go. And so that's what I did, and then we got some towels, and it was all over. I think for a lot of us, when the anxieties of life come into our hearts, we stay in the freak-out mode. We don't actually do what God asks us to do. Go cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Peter wants us to turn our stresses into a specific action. He wants us to cast our cares upon God. And God is the one who can handle our anxieties. I've been learning this in a couple of opposite ways over the last few years, relearning it in some fresh ways. My personal time with Jesus has always been an important part of my walk with the Lord. I was fortunate to grow up in a home where I saw both of my parents reading their Bibles and spending time in prayer every morning. So when I finally surrendered to Jesus, I just assumed that's what Christians did. And I started doing that. That became a real regular part of my life. But I shared with you last weekend that I got a chance in 2019 to take uh, 10 weeks out of the pulpit and have a sabbatical. And it was a real refreshing, peaceful kind of time. One of the things we did, we went to York, England. And while we were there in York as a family for a month, uh, we just kind of enjoyed England and enjoyed the city. But in York, there's an old Roman wall from when the Romans were actually there that surrounds the old city. It's about three miles uh, of a walk around the city, actually on top of this wall because it's so thick. And every morning, I would get up during that time, just totally at peace, and I would go out. I was at 40 years of age at that point, 20 years in ministry, and I just had questions for God about what the next stage of life and ministry was supposed to look like. And every day, I would walk those three miles, and I would just cast my cares upon him. Now fast forward to spring of 2020, and in a totally different kind of way, when we were all told to go home and churches were closed down and it was a chaotic moment and pastors were wondering, what do we do? And Christians were wondering, what do we do? And we were very scared and freaked out and separated from each other and all of that. I just began doing the same thing. 
walking each morning, taking my anxieties, casting them upon the Lord. And I was refreshed again as God took those burdens from my heart and helped show me the way. And I encourage you to do the same. Find your way of casting your anxieties upon him, then make it a regular part of your life. Now there's one last thing I want to show you from this passage. We've thought about the exhortation to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. We've thought about the motivation that God will exalt us at the proper time. We've considered the application. We have to actually take our cares and cast them upon him. But there's a foundational theological truth to all this as well. Why would I do what Peter says? Look at the end of verse 7. He says, because he, God, cares for you. That's the answer. The foundational truth of all of this, the theological perspective that drives us to say, I'm going to cast my cares on him. I'm going to trust him that if I'm going through chaos for Jesus, he's in control of my life. And I'm going to sovereignly, I'm going to allow his sovereignty into my life and humbly submit myself to his mighty hand, trusting that he will exalt me at the proper time. Why would I do this? Because I know that God cares for me. You see, God can handle your cares, and he wants you to transfer your care to him because he cares for you. And this, of course, is most evident when you look at the cross, isn't it? At the cross, we get the nature of God. When you look at the cross, you discover God is good. When you look at the cross, you discover that God is just. When you look at the cross, you discover that God is love. When you look at the cross, you discover that God is wise, wiser than any of us, and has plans that go way beyond our own imagination. When you look at the cross, you realize that God can take the evil and use it for good. And when you look at the cross, you realize that God, who took his only begotten son, allowed him to endure that agony and then exalted him into the place and position of prominence, you come to the conclusion of knowing God will do the same for me. God will do the same for me. As Paul the Apostle said in Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's nothing that is right for us that God will withhold from us, and we know that because he did not withhold his only begotten son. But I love this phrase, because he cares for you. Why do I do this? Because he cares for me. Why do I cast my cares upon him? Because he cares for us. In our house, there's certain sayings that when somebody says them, it fires everybody's mind to remember an event from the past that makes us either all laugh or giggle or whatever. And this phrase, because he cares for you, brings one of those episodes up in my own mind. Uh, when my first two daughters were four and two years old or five and three, somewhere around there, there was one night they were sharing a bedroom at that time and Christina and I put them to bed and they proceeded to play in their room even though it was bedtime. And they were not sly about it. They were very loud and we could hear them quite obviously all the way downstairs. So we went up, I opened the door 
And lo and behold, there they are, and they're playing with their two favorite dollies. And these dolls were very special to them. And so as a discipline, hey, you know, it's bedtime. You're supposed to be in your bed. You're not supposed to be talking. You're supposed to be sleeping. One of the things that I did is I took those two special precious dollies away from them, put them down at the end of the hallway and said, this is where your dolls are going to sleep tonight. Now, that was a really big deal because at that age, those dollies had a very special place. Some of them would sleep in the bed or had their own little bed next to the big bed and would get tucked in and all of that. Well, my middle daughter, the younger one at the time, she's a very fact-based person. So when I took her rainbow bright doll away from her and put it at the end of the hallway, she just thought to herself, well, tomorrow I will see that inanimate object, my rainbow bright doll, and she went to sleep. But my oldest daughter is a romantic. And so to her, it was as if I took a living being put it down at the end of the hallway to live a night of abject poverty and suffering on the streets. And she couldn't believe that we'd done this thing. So after we closed the door, I did what every parent does, and I just stood there at the door, just kind of listening in to see what would happen. And my oldest daughter, she was going off. She was preaching to her younger sister about how terrible what we'd just done was, how she couldn't believe we took her doll. She couldn't believe we'd done these things. She couldn't believe all this. And then the kicker, here's the quotation that we'll still say today. She looked at her younger sister who was just ready now to go to bed and she said, and the worst part is you don't even care. <laughs> we quote that all the time. The worst part is you don't even care. I think a lot of us as Christians, we wonder, does God care? Does God care? When we see Christianity being pushed to the fringe of society, when we experience marginalization or slander, when we hear about full-scale persecution in other parts of the world, when we're humbled under God's mighty hand for our lives, we have to know God does care. He sees it, he's in control, he's sovereign, and he is wanting to bring you not just through the pains of life, but to them and then through them. He's that sovereign. And we have so many great examples of this as I've been trying to promote this version of Christianity to you throughout the book of 1 Peter. One person I've been highlighting over and over again is the prophet Daniel. Daniel was told by the prophet Jeremiah that it was time for judgment to begin at the house of God. That Israel had been messing up for almost five centuries, and it was time for God to judge them. And so he was going to carry them into captivity in Babylon, and Daniel submitted to that exilic life. Then Daniel waited for the exaltation that only God can give, and God gave it to him over and over again. He raised Daniel up against all the other prophets all the magicians and sorcerers, and he put Daniel in positions of prominence. He exalted Daniel. And Daniel cast his anxieties continually upon the Lord. I can't imagine what it would have been like when Daniel told the most powerful man in the world, hey, I heard you had a dream, and I know you're going to kill everybody who can't give you the interpretation of the dream, but I will 
tell you the dream tomorrow, God will show me and he'll show me the interpretation. I can't imagine the anxiety that he could have felt, but he cast his cares upon the Lord. And God demonstrated his care for this man over and over again. But we don't have just Daniel, we have Jesus. All these steps that I'm proposing to you today are some of the most Christ-like things you could ever do. Jesus humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. He lowered himself to the plan of the triune God and allowed himself to become one of us in order to die for us. Jesus waited for the exaltation to come from the Father rather than fight for it himself. And Jesus is still waiting for that exaltation, by the way. He is risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But Paul speaks of a day in the future where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is still coming, and Jesus is waiting. And Jesus cast all his anxieties upon the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, every day of his life, he cried out to God. Even while he was on the cross, he unloaded his concerns to the Father. And the Father cared for his son. That's how Jesus got through it all. He knew of his father's love. He knew of his father's care. And that's how we can endure today. So let's pray together and ask God to help us do this very hard thing. Lord, we come to you today and we pray that you'd help us to cast our cares upon you. Lord, humbling ourselves under your mighty hand, your plans for our lives, even corporately together as a church, even in this community, Lord, that when there are moments where Christianity is pushed aside, we pray that you'd help us, Lord, that you would exalt us in the proper time, and Lord, help us to cast our cares upon you, knowing all the while that you care for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, church, let's stand together and sing to our Lord.